You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 16, Social Media and Addiction. When most people think of addictions, they think of drugs. But do scientists believe that you can be addicted to behaviors? Well, this is interesting because the dominant thinking, at least when I started my graduate career in addiction back in the 90s, the mid to late 90s, uh, the dominant belief was that no, that the only things that were addictive were substances. So things like cocaine and heroin and alcohol, because the thinking was that when you are using these substances, you're literally changing the chemistry of your brain by virtue of having a a chemical in your body. But that thinking has changed over the last 20 years or so. uh, And now we have in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, as it's known um, popularly, we actually have inclusion in the section on substance and related disorders, uh, some of the behavioral addictions. You know, it's it's interesting, like people, when they think about the chemical aspect of the brain or the biological aspect of the brain, it's very easy to think that it requires a specifically chemical or biological thing to change it, right? But of course, everything you do changes your brain. It, it's interesting that even in the 90s, People who should know better. <laughs> I know, right? You know, Come on. You know. We know that behaviors, uh, anytime you behave, you think it changes your ba- brain chemistry. But there was something specific related to the fact that, oh, you're actually ingesting a chemical and it's it's being absorbed into your bloodstream and traveling up into your brain. It is activating your your the cells in your brain. And that's why we refer to substances that are addictive as, quote unquote, psychoactive. Um, although psychoactive substances are not necessarily addictive because they, anything that's affecting your, your cells is altering your behavior. Right. Is, addiction is not really a well, it's, it's not agreed upon what it really means, right? How, how do you want to talk about it for the purposes of this? Uh, nobody agrees upon the definition of addiction. It's, it's much like, you know, the famous saying by uh, an Ameri- one of the judges in the U.S. that said, I don't know how to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And I think most of us have a good sense in our mind as to what addiction, quote unquote, looks like. Um, but nobody agrees on what, how to actually define that. And that's been a major issue with most of the mental health disorders is that we tend to use, uh, we, d- we, def- we name them before we know what causes them, and therefore we have a hard time defining them. So the, the, sa- the saying is, nosology, or naming, precedes etiology, or, the, or knowing the cause of. Addiction is not, uh, importantly, it's not a diagnostic term. It is a term that is used in science and in medicine uh, and in treatment, Um, but it is not something that you could never be diagnosed with an addiction. That said, uh, the definition that I like to use, which is one that I take from uh, Robert West, who wrote a book called Theory of Addiction, is loss of control over a reward-seeking behavior. And I like this definition because it is all-encompassing. It refers to uh, loss of control over reward-seeking behaviors, not drug-seeking behaviors. So it does include that potential loss of control over certain behaviors that I consider addictive, uh, which can be things like eating or sex or, for the purposes of today's conversation, use of things like um, social media. Yeah, getting back to what you said about the diagnostic term versus the scientific term, there's um, there's a tendency in mental health to talk about 
uh, things in the DSM-5. So the DSM, for everybody, is the uh, sort of the official therapy guidebook for what you can diagnose somebody with. And uh, there's this idea that this is such a, uh, a sacred book that if something isn't in there, then it doesn't exist. But of course, that book is not really supposed to be a scientific ontology of every possible thing that could be wrong with you, right? It is It is a practical guide. Is that mm-hmm. right? That's right. And it, and it's important to recognize that up until the DSM-5, what was included in the DSM was literally voted on by psychiatrists, so members of the American Psychiatric Association. The, there was a change with the DSM-5 where for the first time they allowed uh, an open forum so that anybody could comment on the proposed categorical changes to the DSM-5. So now we have the voice of the public and the voice of many other uh, organizations and, and invested individuals in making decisions about what goes into the DSM-5. But again, it's not it's not uh, exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, and it is meant to be used as a sort of uh, a guidebook uh, for the diagnosis. However, importantly, these have implications for insurance and treatment, mm-hmm. particularly when we think about the U.S., right? When something is in the DSM-5 and we can give it a code, this means that it is then translated into a specific kind of treatment uh, protocol, which then, um, again, has implications for how much, how, what insurance will cover that treatment plan, right? So when they took out uh, aut- uh, the term Asperger's, Mm-hmm. in the DSM-5, and they replaced it with autism spectrum disorder. Uh, this led to a huge uh, conversation because suddenly then people, kids that had been diagnosed with Asperger's, were no longer eligible for funding and for treatment. Yeah. So, hmm. Because they don't use the historic DSM C- well, at the time of diagnosis? That's <laughs> Yeah. So, so it just meant that insurance agencies had to change really all their... Yeah, right. they had to, they, there was a lag, right? So, yeah. yeah. And, I, you know, I don't know if this actually happens, but I've heard people say that if there's something wrong with them psychologically and they talk to their therapist and it doesn't fit any of the categories, mm-hmm. the therapist will sometimes say there's nothing wrong with you. Oh, but if really? You go, but if you go to a... Well, you know, I so I've yeah. been looking into this thing, maladaptive daydreaming and like... Mm-hmm. Um, is it, or compulsive fantasizing. And I've heard, you know, several reports of people saying that, like, uh, the, the, the doctor just says, oh, well, everybody fantasizes, nothing to worry about. You know, it seems like if you go to a regular doctor and they don't know what's wrong with you, they acknowledge that there's something wrong that they don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I... But I, I, think, I, I think that goes against the basic kind of... Um, practice of psychology and psychiatry, which is that all most of the uh, disorders that are listed are relate to a maladaptive pattern of behavior that causes right. significant psychological distress. So if if indeed a patient is or an individual is experiencing psychological distress, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. Regardless of whether or not it's in the DSM. Right. Anyway. Well, getting back to um, the social media and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the f- the first term was uh, the internet addiction, right? Correct, right? yes. Yeah. So this was uh, coined by Kimberly Young in 1996. And Kimberly Young uh, was sort of a woman ahead of her time where she recognized uh, that there was problematic behaviors associated with internet use. And let's, you know, you know, when was the internet invented? I think it was in the 60s. But yeah. then the web was made in the 90s, the like right. 94-ish. 
Right. So, you know, these are early adopters, people that would have been engaging in the internet when it was like literally like you clicked and the, the web page took like five minutes to refresh. And the, the things that we were able to do on the internet were very limited. So we had like rudimentary email. We had some, you know, uh, information superhighway. We had some uh, information out there on the internet. And we had some rudimentary chat rooms and so on. So Kimberly Young did uh, kind of, she was prescient and she recognized that some people were spending a lot of time on the internet. So she, in fact, uh, developed a survey that was adapted from the DSM, then it was the DSM-4, Criteria for Substance Use Disorder, which was essentially, it's a list of 11 criteria that relate to uh, behaviors that are um, indicative of somebody having a problematic uh, relationship with substances. And so things like you know, they're spending more time than originally intended, they feel um, uh, preoccupied, they're, uh, you know, aspects of their life are being diminished because they're spending more time on the internet so they're not you know they're spending less time at work or in relationships so she adopted this these criteria and kind of translated it into internet use and what she discovered was that lo and behold there was a significant proportion of the population that she surveyed that did kind of meet these early diagnostic criteria for problematic internet use so even now the term in the DSM is substance use disorder right is it just Correct. understood that Gambling and the internet are substances or, or no, treated so, like it, or how does it work? No. So the category in the DSM is substances and related addictions. Oh, of okay. Which, so, so remember I said addiction is not a, di uh, a diagnostic term. If you, if you come in and you have a pr uh, problematic alcohol use, you would be diagnosed with alcohol use disorder. If you have problematic opioid use, you'd have opioid use disorder. I see. Uh, if you have problem with gambling, the previous diagnostic term for gambling, and it was it was actually included in a, in a totally different category in the DSM prior to the DSM-5, was pathological gambling. Now it's gambling disorder. So gambling disorder is included in that substance and related addictions. There is no other behavioral addiction that's included with perhaps some suggestion that bin, uh, binge eating disorder may represent uh, a disorder that resembles substance use disorder. Internet addiction or internet use disorder is not in the DSM-5. Oh, and so no. sex isn't sex addiction isn't there? No. Porn addiction isn't there? Nope. The only so the only thing is so they've been lobbying to include hypersexual disorder or compulsive sexual behavior for in the DSM five. It did not get included. Uh, again, they were lobbying to include internet disorder or some version of that. It did not get included. What is listed is in the very back of the DSM five. There's a category called essentially things to watch out for. Okay. So future perhaps uh, disorders that could be included. And what is included is internet gaming disorder. Wow, okay. So today we wanna to talk about, I mean, I don't hear people talking about internet addiction much anymore, at least socially, but uh, one thing that feels very addictive in the people around us is social media, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but that's different from just web surfing and email, right? Correct. So social media is essentially any platform where you're engaging with that platform and also sharing and disseminating information to others that are also linked into that platform. So, you know, the classic is Facebook. Facebook was sort of the, the social media platform uh, and is still considered it is the most used uh, social media platform globally. Uh, other ones include things like LinkedIn, Twitter, and what's popular amongst youth is Instagram and Snapchat. 
Right, but the, um, internet, social media also includes dating sites and, and gaming, right? Correct, right. So, sort of like, uh, Or social gaming, I guess. Yeah, so there's like things like Tinder and Grindr, uh, which are the dating sites. Again, you're interfacing with others on this, this platform. And then the one uh, that has received a lot of attention from the addiction uh, world is these uh, internet gaming. So things, uh, the official term is MM. P-O-R-G. M-M-O. M-M-O. M-M-O-R-P-G. So, <laughs> Massively multiplayer online role-playing games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. M-M-O's. There we go. Uh, so the, you know, the World of Warcraft was one of the original ones. Final Fantasy were very popular. Uh, the one that is very popular amongst kids now is, oh God, I'm going to... Fortnite? Fortnite, that's the one. They have all these dances. So, you know, you're playing this game at the same time you're wearing a headset and you're um, either playing with uh, groups of people or you're playing against them and you're kind of mocking them and um, shouting out things. So these are very, very... Um, they have a lot of incentive. They have a lot of lures, uh, particularly among youth. Um, you know, we can get into conversation about loot boxes, but uh, they they are very attractive uh, mm-hmm. to young young people. And so people uh, get hooked on these things, I guess, right? Well, certainly there is evidence uh, that suggests that, yes, there are people who develop problematic behaviors around engaging with these platforms. Uh, this was originally... Um, highlighted in East Asia, so particularly China and South Korea, uh, have considered it almost a national epidemic in terms of individuals that are spending so much time on these platforms. And, and, you know, there's case studies of uh, a couple, for example, that were engaging in one of these uh, virtual reality environments where they were taking care of a of a child in that virtual reality environment and were neglecting their actual real-life baby. Uh, so they were charged with um, parental neglect. Um, but certainly, the you know, that phenomenon is burgeoning and there's we're, we're increasingly paying attention to the fact that there are legions of youth that um, spend a lot of time on these sites, uh, neglect their day-to-day activities, develop what we think of are are features of tolerance and withdrawal, which are core features of addiction. So using more than uh, you originally intended because you're not getting the same amount of high. So in this case, Mm. it's spending a lot of time. Withdrawal, people experience uh, feelings of anxiety and dysphoria when they're not engaging in the gameplay. So this has been really something that uh, researchers are kind of saying, hey, uh, this is something we need to be watching for. And then certainly as a neuroscientist, I can tell you that there's some data supporting the fact that uh, when we look at the brain activity of these individuals that have problematic gaming behaviors, they do resemble what we see with substance use disorders, with individuals who have chronic uh, substance use disorders. You know, regarding games, I just finished an interesting book called Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal, and it, it talks about how uh, games in particular are designed to have a uh, reward schedule that is uh, optimized. So you might think of it like um, the reward schedule of a game is to mm-hmm. reality kind of like a Snickers bar is to an apple or something, right? So it's right. like a hype. It's like a, the super normal stimuli, right? Right. And so, uh, I mean, that book, part of the theme of that book is that we should try to make reality more rewarding so that mm-hmm. we can actually accomplish things in the real world. But, you know, the case of somebody responding to a game about raising a baby more than raising an actual baby mm-hmm. is certainly alarming, but it speaks mm-hmm. to how, you know, the world wasn't created to engage us, <laughs> you know, and we are only moderately made to engage with the world, right? So these games are 
uh, made by incredibly smart people. That's right. To be really addictive. And then to the same extent, Facebook and, 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 group and things like that have psychologists working for them that try to keep you there longer. That's you know, right. Netflix. Netflix will do it too, right? Yeah. So what's the social media addicted person like? Uh, so I think in any epidemiological studies have seen that uh, people that do engage with social media to a level that is problematic. And again, this is very, you know, it's burgeoning data. It, there's nothing definitive here, um, but certainly there de does seem to be individuals that are more prone or more likely to engage problematically with social media, more likely to be women, female, uh, uh, younger age, right? So these are youth between 13 and 25-ish, um, and also lower um, university, like lower levels of education. So, um, you know, we're when we think about look around the room and look look where we are in university, this is a lot of our uh, students would would probably qualify for some of these behaviors, right? Right, but th but they also would need to be really concerned with their presence and and approval on social media, right? Like, yeah. like is there a, like overly concerned with that kind of? Yeah, so there's uh, personality traits that are linked to problematic social behaviors are more likely to have narcissistic personality traits. So people mm -hmm. who are very concerned with their image uh, and uh, feel like that's really the what they are, their self-esteem is derived from um, the likes and clicks and uh, comments. Um, yeah. So narcissism and, and, you know, there's a whole concept of FOMO, fear of missing out. So people who very much feel like their presence on social media is, is they feel that pressure to engage um, because otherwise, if they're not on there, then they might be missing out on some important conversation or important dialogue. And, and important, I mean, it, it feels important to them, right? Whether it's mm -hmm. actually important, you know. I, I think that sort of depends on the situation. I think that when, when uh, very young people are, navigating their social world, it actually is important in terms mm -hmm. of their social standing. And if people are, well, maybe uh, maybe there's science to say this, maybe you know about it. Like if if, um, if someone is off social media for a while, do they lose standing in their social group? Well, that's interesting. So uh, to some extent it is, y yes. Uh, so I don't know if you know about the concept of um, streaks. Have you heard of streaks? No. What are streaks? So uh, in Snapchat, uh, if you are... So in Snapchat, you're swapping photos that disappear after a certain amount of time, right? So if you if you uh, swap a photo with somebody on a given day and continue up uh, repeatedly on on subsequent days, that is your streak. So if you and I are, are Snapchatting oh with one another, uh, we might have a streak of 79 days, right? And so uh, youth are trying to ensure that their streaks are maintained, and that is very important to them. And if they lose that streak, it, it's it, to, it, to some individuals it can be devastating, right? So um, are these there streaks is, actually supported by the software, or are these just things that people made up? Like the kids no, it made is. Up? You see a little fire icon. Oh god, that's so devious. Yeah, right. That's so de bad. Yes. Shame on you, Snapchat. Yeah. So my but that's niece. Their but their business model is like uh, addiction, yes, right? That's right. The, the people that make these apps are, like you were saying, they are very wise to psychology. And they know what, what kinds of uh, features will keep people hooked, right? Like the, right. the news feed never ends. 
you can keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Yeah, if you've got if you've got like right? seven hundred friends, yeah. then if you refresh your newsfeed every thirty seconds, you'll get something. That's right. You know, from yeah. from somebody you know who you presumably care about. Mm-hmm. Now, um, let's talk about cell phones for a minute because cell phones have a variety of uses. You can actually be incredibly productive on a cell phone. You can read great literature and you can write a novel. But when most people are walking around on a cell phone, we assume they're doing social media. You know? Correct. Uh, you know, I used to have a Palm Pilot. Oh, I, I did too. I love so those. Yep. I love the Palm Pilot. And, when I, and I used to use the Palm Pilot to take notes at talks. I had no problem with that. I would never take notes on a phone at a oh, talk now. Oh, the perception. Because I figured people, people would think that I was not paying attention. I was. Yeah. It's interesting you say that because my when I'm on my uh, smartphone at home, uh, my husband always thinks, makes the assumption that I'm texting. And sometimes I'm like, <laughs> no, I'm actually sending an email. Like I do use it for work, like you're saying. there. But it's right. interesting that that perception when you're on your smartphone you must be doing something right related to play but especially for uh the younger generation i know that they they do use the cell phone as the primary means of social interaction Uh, i i heard a young person criticizing oh use use the computer for facebook that's so cute right because they're not (laughs) using their phone (laughs) but the phone you know the phone being always on you yeah and being always available means that any like hint of boredom means mm-hmm. that, that you've got this draw of this device in your pocket or your purse that you can mm-hmm. always pull out to get maybe like a hit of uh, mm-hmm. pleasure or something, right? But some teachers, um, because it's so easy, they've, they've dis- they like ban cell phones. I mean, in high school, I think it's probably pretty common not to allow people to pull out cell phones. Yeah. But even in university, some professors uh, have a no cell phone rule in their class, right? Yeah, so I, this is interesting timely. I don't know uh, where where we are in the future when this episode is released, but uh, the Ontario government just um, made it uh, a law law to not allow cell phones in the classrooms in elementary and high schools. Up until this point, it had just so been... It's, so it's, it's, it will, is or will be illegal to have oh, a cell phone not, in the classroom? If, I don't know if the Lord law is right. It, they just made it a policy. Okay. The, right? So up until this point, it's just really been enforced by the the, the teachers, right? And just mm-hmm. like... Right? But it ha- there's nothing... There's no policy in place, but it was just made into policy. But yes, in university, same thing. It's up to us, right? We have uh, academic freedom. We can have our classroom however way we like it. Um, but four years ago, I actually made the decision to not allow smartphones in my classroom. And I know there are a, a fair number of other professors on campus who have done the same thing. Well, there's, there are studies show that the cell phones actually are distracting. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- what has been the response or the effects yeah, of, I, your, I, of changing that rule? Yeah, I think students are actually grateful. Um, nobody's been, nobody's given me sass about it. Nobody's fought me back. Uh, I just say at the beginning of class, the, the first lecture of the semester, I say, here's the reason why. You're paying uh, some of money to sit here in this classroom, and I'm spending my time uh, engaging you in a conversation. And what I'm going to do is try to make my lecture as engaging and, and uh, interesting as possible. Uh, and I'd prefer to have your attention at that time. And you're going to learn more if you're actually paying attention and not being distracted by your cell phone. Uh, so the students are generally pretty good. They're, every once in a while, there's one or two that kind of laps. I think it's habit, right? They just bleh, start blindly scrolling. And I'm just like, just a reminder, guys, no smartphones in the classroom. That said, what I have noticed is everybody's got a laptop. And I can't control uh, what they're engaging with on their actual right. 
right, uh, right. tablets so, or laptops, right? But some, so, some people appreciate the rule. It's oh, like they an do. excuse, right? Yes, yes, they do. So students have told me that they feel this constant pressure to be present on social media, so on chat forums and Instagram. So if somebody is commenting or, or, t- or messaging them, because the today's youth know that their cell phones are always on and they're always responsive. So if, 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 a, if somebody sends a message out and that person doesn't respond immediately, they take umbrage to that and they're offended. Mm. So the students feel this constant pressure to be, to be present and be replying. And so when they can say to the, their friend groups or whatever, listen, my prof doesn't let me to have a cell phone, then that pressure is relieved. And they feel that sense right. of gratitude to be able to be phys- like mentally present in the classroom. Right. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so, does using social media affect the brain in any measurable way? Well, it's a difficult, right? So, m- most of the models of substance use disorders and addictions, we do tend to rely on animal models to tell us a lot about how uh, chronic or acute drug use affects the brain, right? And we can explore causality, right? We can give an animal uh, a, a chronic administration to a drug and we can see, oh, how does it change this brain network or this pathway or this uh, chemical? We can't do that in humans. It's not ethical. Um, And at the the same time, we can't really develop models of internet use in in animals. So what we are restricted to in terms of our tools and technology to explore how social media or the internet affects our brain is imaging. So we can use things like functional magnetic resonance imaging, where we can actually see which parts of the brain are active when somebody's in a scanner, or we can use other uh, more sophisticated brain scanning um, technology to see how the white matter of the brain is affected, so those pathways between uh, critical cell pathways. Um, and we also need to be mindful of the fact that if we if we look at somebody's brain activity in in one um, acute point in time, that doesn't tell us anything about causality, right? So, for example, if we take groups of individuals that we that have scored highly on some survey or tool that says that they have problematic social media use. Okay, and we put them in a brain scanner and we look at their brain activity or the circuits, uh, uh, circuit activity, we can say, yes, there, there may be changes, right? And sure enough, they have seen that. So they have seen that uh, some of the changes that we see is that there are smaller brain volumes of a region of the brain known as the nucleus accumbens, which is the main part of the brain that's involved in coding for reward or pleasure, which is it tends to be what we see with with people who have chronic exposure to substances such as heroin or cocaine. In addition, there's also less brain uh, volume in parts of the prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain that's involved in decision making, which tends to inhibit uh, the lower brain regions such as the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens says, ah, this is good, I feel pleasure, and the prefrontal cortex will inhibit that and go, okay, you know, we need to bring your behavior back down to baseline, so stop eating or stop snorting cocaine. So the interpretation of of this finding is that people who have problematic social media use have less rewarding center activity and less activity in the the parts of the brain that control the reward. So they're more likely to continue to engage because they feel less pleasure to begin with. So they want more and the, 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 the prefrontal cortex can't control that use. However, again, importantly, this doesn't tell us causality. It doesn't tell us that engaging with social media is going to cause the brain cells 
to die off and that you'll have lower brain volumes. It's more likely that somebody has these pre-existing differences to begin with, and that puts them at risk for these problematic behaviors. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So do you have any tips to help people who might feel like they're a slave to their social media and you know yeah, how they might get off it? Yeah, uh, so a couple things. Number one, they're delete the apps from your phones. And I, I do have a lot of students that have resorted to that. They no longer have things like Instagram or Snapchat on their phones because they've recognized that they're spending too much time on these um, uh, these tools. Uh, you can get lots of apps, ironically, that, can, that, that will monitor your social media use. And after a certain time, uh, you know, you can set your own limits. Uh, okay, I only want to be able to be spending an hour a day on Instagram, for example, and then it'll like shut it off and you won't be able to access it. So there are, you know, apps that will act like your prefrontal cortex that will control your own use of these things. Um, and if you really do feel like it's a problematic behavior, uh, I would I would then start to do some reflection and start to think, okay, what, why, right? And then that's, that's really at the crux of it is that some people who develop these problematic behaviors, they are quote unquote, uh, filling the hungry ghost, right? Which is the, the Buddhist philosophy that people who engage in these like overuse of, of drugs, overuse of food, overuse of gam uh, gambling and, and sex are trying to fill the, the black hole, right? So it's, it, this means let's, let's sit and reflect and why am I uh, engaging in this? Maybe it's time to uh, seek some help. Yeah. And, and let's, Let's be really clear. If you, if any of our listeners think that they actually have an addiction to anything, social yes. media or whatever else, you shouldn't be just relying on your recovery being based on uh, what you heard in a podcast. You should seek a medical professional <laughs> and check Excellent. it out. You know, yeah. I, I come at this uh, a bit from more like the concentration aspect of it, right? So um, my tips are more along the lines of uh, scheduling your uh social media, right? Mm -hmm. If you find, because to me, one of the big problems of it is that it's a constant interruption, right? So mm -hmm. turning off notifications, I think is a great idea. Mm -hmm. So um, some methods are, you know, you work for 25 minutes, the first 25 minutes of a half an hour. And then for the last five minutes, you're allowed to take a break, you know, go to the bathroom, get a drink and maybe check your social media, right? But you, mm -hmm. but you, you specifically check rather than the phone pushing it to you. I think turning off notifications is one thing that, you, you know, if you're, maybe you don't have the, the willpower to delete the app or maybe your social life, if you're 13 years old, doesn't allow it or something like that. But, you know, you can turn off notifications to keep you from getting interrupted, right? And then, you know, if you're getting really strong about it, you can maybe reduce it to like once a day, like after you've gotten a lot of your work done, you can have a half an hour break of, of social media, you know? But I think, you know, it's important for everyone to think about how, how happy it's actually making them, you know, mm -hmm. because I think that there's a um, psychologist understand a little bit better that there's a difference between really enjoying something and doing something compulsively, you mm -hmm. know, even games. I, I think there's a real difference between getting pleasure in a game and and just not being able to stop, you know, mm -hmm. like I've had I've had video game experiences where I experience grandeur. At, at a beautiful set design, or I feel really proud because I've accomplished every difficult task. But I've also played games that are that I just can't stop moving my fingers, you know. And I, mm -hmm. I uh, and and at the end of it, I, I don't feel great and smiling like, wow, that was a wonderful experience. It was more like I was able to tear myself away, you know. So I think a little like reflection on whether social media is actually making you happy or not mm -hmm. is really good. Yeah. I talked to. 
Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, certainly that is, again, a core feature of addiction is that people um, have a transition where they go from engaging with the substance or the behavior and it's making them feel good to a point where they're actually using to try to feel normal, right? Mm -hmm. So they go from very impulsive, uh, um, positive reinforcement driven, I'm engaging in this, I'm scrolling, this is, I'm making me happy, to uh, you're actually engaging compulsively and you're feeling so low to begin with that you're just using to feel normal. And that's certainly what we, we hear from individuals who, who have a substance use disorder is that um, they want it more and more and they like it less and less. And right. I think a social media, particularly things like Instagram, where we're seeing people's lives that seem so fabulous, right? And, and we know now that the there's a lot of good psychological work that people who engage in Instagram or Facebook or whatever, they actually walk away feeling like, oh, my life is terrible because it can't compare to these fabulous lives that are being put out um, by the news feeds, right? And people are putting this very... Um, faux reality and I know you Jim have been wonderful about occasionally on a fa your Facebook you're like hey you know what I didn't get a grant or I had a crappy day um, because it's important to have that balance out there in 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 the world because most people walk away saying it's like comparing themselves and feeling low uh, which will fuel more use right somebody's social media presence is often a highlight reel of, of the best yep. things in their life and when That's you compare right. it to your own you see all the dirt and awfulness and it's hard to remember that yeah. that other people's lives are just as bad. They're just not. They're not highlighting it. They're not. Yeah, they're not <laughs> taking a picture of their their cat puked on their carpet and they're putting <laughs> that on Instagram. <laughs> you know, um, and I, I talked to um, a media scientist who said, you know, I don't think email is actually checking email. I think email is an attempt to change your mood. And I, I that really hit me hard. And now mm. and I started really reflecting, like when I because I, I I if you pay attention, you can. F you can identify the urge to check your email or to check social media mm. and like sit back and like, okay, what's going on right now that's making me want to do that? And sometimes it's I'm bored, which is a, a negative state, right? Or sometimes it's I'm trying to do a difficult task and my mind is searching for something a little bit easier that might mm. give me pleasure, you know? And one of the things I've done to change is uh, if I do feel the urge to check email, I think, okay, well, am I happy? Because if I'm happy, don't check the email. <laughs> right, you know, because like I might get a, you know, I might get a bad email. Right, I'm already happy. So if if I'm sort of feeling down the dumps, I'm more likely to allow myself to look at the email because I do actually need a, a little positive something, you know, and uh, I might get it. <laughs> that is so no. <laughs> I would be the opposite. I'd be inclined to only check if I'm feeling good. Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, cause I, I don't know. I think. That's also one of the drivers of um, problematic behavior is when we, we do it to relieve a negative state. Right. Do it to relieve a negative state, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I eat food because I feel depressed and sad, right? And, and that's negative reinforcement. Right. You also eat because you're hungry. Not always. I mean, no, no, right. But what I mean is mm -hmm. even when you're... Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because like a lot of the things you do, you do to relieve a negative thing. Mm -hmm. Right, like you, mm -hmm. you feel cramped when you're sitting too long, and you get up, and that's that's also negative reinforcement. You know, mm -hmm. but it's very powerful. 
uh, yeah. in, when we use alcohol because I have a lot of anxiety, that reinforcement is so much more powerful than if you're using alcohol just to go out with some friends and have right. a good time. Right. Well, on that note, anyway. I hope everybody tweets the hell out of this episode. Well, my Twitter is going <laughs> off like crazy right now. <laughs> I should turn off my notifications. <laughs> this episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by the Frontal Lobe, allowing the planning necessary to pull off a podcast production. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com.